to get a very kind of basic understanding of how bacteria respond. Uh, to environmental cues. And how do they use these cues to kind of set off the appropriate responses? And in bacteria, these are called signal transduction systems. Uh, and what I'm going to emphasize a little, or maybe a lot, uh, is the kind of difference <coughs> between free living bacteria and bacterial pathogens. Okay, so uh, bacteria that cause disease and how they differ from bacteria that are found in soil and water and what have um, We're also going to talk about another aspect, a very important aspect, it turns out, uh, how bacteria sense. Um, what the population structure is, okay? So, um, you know, we are constantly, you know, with our, our senses can tell, okay, we're in a room with about, you know, 12 people or whatnot. But bacteria don't have these senses, okay? They don't have eyes. <laughs> so they can't, they have no idea, essentially, if they're in a, a very crowded milieu of all one species of bacteria or they're in a mixed environment or whether they're the next bacteria in the ocean is 20 yards away, okay? Uh, this turns out to be a very uh, important <coughs> sensing device in bacteria and we'll talk a little about how they do that. And then as a, a just a kind of an example of some general processes, um, in particular that are interesting in pathogens, we're going to talk about uh, bacterial secretion and specialized transport. Okay, so originally this was meant to be a kind of an interactive kind of lecture, but since you have the slides sitting right there in front of you. I don't match it, it'll be too interactive. Okay, so, uh, bacteria. What we're talking about, are what are, let's see, I don't want to turn that one on. Can I do it from here? Can you turn that one off? Thank you. So what we're talking about, here are some bacteria, okay, uh, what kind of inputs they get in terms of environmental cues and how do they turn that into the appropriate output? Okay, <coughs> so, you know, I was going to ask you to suggest what are the kinds of things they want to know, okay, but um, since we have that front of us. Um, obviously, nutritional status is probably the most important factor for them. Okay. What's out there to eat? Okay. Is there glucose out there, which in most bacteria uh, is the number one prime food? Okay. And what they do is they adjust their metabolism. 
okay? They either turn on what are called catabolic pathways, which means they break things down. Um, these are things like sugars, what have you, or anabolic pathways. And these are pathways uh, that are involved in synthesizing something. Say, for example, an amino acid. Okay? Uh, they have pathways of genes that produce proteins and enzymes that allow them to produce certain molecules. So, this is the output that they're basically adapting to by <coughs> sensing what's in the environment. And they also have systems that can not only sense what's in the environment, but they can sense gradients. Okay? So they can sense, for example, a glucose gradient in which they went from a lower concentration to a higher concentration. And obviously that's a good thing for them. They're going in the right direction. And what they do, oops, is they use uh, motility, termed uh, chemotaxis, okay, <coughs> to move up these gradients. It can also work the other way. In other words, it may sense something that is toxic to them, and they want to move down that gradient away from them, okay? Uh, another important factor is their physical status. Okay, so what's the environment like? You know, is it a low pH environment? Um, you know, are they in a water source that's contaminated and very acidic? Or what's the temperature? Obviously very important. Uh, and other things like osmolarity, what's the salt concentration around them? Okay, so uh, to deal with these things, they express a number of what are called transport or efflux systems. Okay, and uh, these include the ABC transporters, and we'll talk a little bit more about how they do these. Sort of and finally, as I mentioned before, Population status is very important to virtually all bacteria. Okay, so how many bacteria are here? How many are the same species as me? How many are different? Are there species that basically I'm trying to poison? Are they trying to poison me? Uh, and they do this using a feature called quorum sensing. Okay, so we have environmental cues and gene regulation. These are the aspects they're looking for. This is their response. Okay, now I'm going to contrast that slightly to pathogenic bacteria. These turn out um, to be highly pathogenic. These are Francisella tularensis. Uh, using the same kind of analysis. Okay, so, as it turns out, the input side is more or less the same. But what pathogens do is they, they alter the output side. 
In other words, they change how they respond uh, to different sorts of factors. Okay, so in terms of nutritional status, this is important for the pathogen because it has to acquire uh, nutrients from the host. So it kind of has to know um, to express genes that are involved in acquiring nutrients from, say, macrophages or other types of cells. Okay. And they use the same sorts of things. They look for nutrient gradients and they respond to them by chemotaxis. Uh, physical status is obviously a very important thing for a pathogen. They use the same kind of uh, things or, or physical features, but they use it to determine where they are in the host. You know, are they on the skin? Are they in the lung? Are they in the gut? Whatever. But they do it using these same systems that they've adapted. And now what they do is they express things like adhesins. Okay? So, for example, in the lung, uh, they may express a certain type of pili uh, that attaches to lung epithelium. Okay? If you're in the gut, it doesn't do you any good to express that because it's specific for the lung. So what they're doing here is adapting uh, the systems that we talked about before for free-living bacteria uh, to help them in terms of um, the virulence or the bacterial pathogenesis. And finally, the, the last one population, status, is also extremely important in um, bacterial pathogenesis. Okay, so bacterial pathogens have basically adapted free-living uh, organisms, regulatory systems, uh, and made them such that um, they now use them for different reasons, uh, but they still regulate gene expression. Okay, so again, environmental cues and gene regulation. Okay, I think you've seen part of this picture before, but we're just uh, going to very quickly go over a couple things about gene regulation in bacteria. And believe me, when you do this in kind of 10 or 15 minutes, you're really, you know, I've probably taken four or five courses total on, on these sorts of things. Okay, again, just as a reminder, bacterial genes are collinear. They don't contain introns. Uh, the chromosomes are usually circular, but certain exceptions exist. Uh, you can tell how old this slide is. This should now be about probably 60,000 sequenced genomes. Okay, the genes themselves. Uh, a cistron is basically a piece of DNA encoding 
one message RNA and protein. Okay, so stand alone. Uh, an operon is a piece of DNA that encodes more than one protein and, and it can range from two to, you know, a ribosomal operon will have like 21 genes. Okay, um, and what that means is that there's a single promoter controlling the expression of a bunch of proteins that are usually functionally related. So, for example, in the ribosomal uh, protein operons, they're all ribosomal proteins. So when you make a ribosome, you need sort of one of each, okay? So it's a way to kind of coordinate uh, related genes. A regulon uh, are, is basically the next step up from that, okay? It's a group of genes or operons that are co-regulated, okay? So they have the same uh, regulatory regions in the promoter. Uh, what that means is it's usually a, a, a sort of bigger response. It's not necessarily a structural response, but it's a response to a certain type of feature, for example, low pH. It may involve several different, both genes and operons, op functioning at the same time, and that's called a regulon. Again, we've talked about transcription and translation, uh, they're coupled in bacteria, okay, so the RNA polymerase starts to make the message, and immediately the message is bound by ribosomes, forming a polyribosome. And so, before you're finished transcribing this gene, you already have the protein being made. So this allows the bacteria to act really rapidly in terms of changes. Okay, we looked at this, uh, just an example of different bacterial genomes, uh, range in size, you know, multiple circular genomes, although this is very rare. Um, but it's told us an incredible amount of information about how these different bacteria operate. For, you know, the TB genome, for example, showed how this bacteria is almost totally dependent on lipids and carbohydrates, both in the structure of the cell wall <coughs> and how it functions. Okay, so now comparing, you know, um, free living organisms in terms of, uh, uh, you know, for example, Pseudomonas aeruginosa can live practically anywhere. And what it is characterized by is having a very large genome with lots of different regulatory systems. Now, to contrast that, complete chlamydia trachomatis has a minimal bacterial genome, okay? But it's an obligate uh, pathogen. 
As a matter of fact, it's obligate intracellular. It only grows inside of uh, host cells. And what you can see is what's called reductive evolution in pathogens. Okay, so pathogens tend to have smaller genomes than free-living organisms. And they basically have evolved um, to uh, adapt specifically to a certain type of host. Okay? And the way this occurs is you see a lot of accumulation of what are called pseudogenes. So these are genes that have incorporated, say, a missense or a stop codon or something where there is no longer expression of a protein from it. But as the bacteria adapts more and more to the host, this protein uh, may not be important. And so the mutation is carried uh, over. Uh, we also see acquisition of new factors, termed virulence factors. These are things like toxins, uh, certain types of pili. Um, in general, there's a reduced capacity for genetic regulation. Okay, so most pathogens um, do not require the level of gene regulation that free living bacteria. For example, they don't need to distinguish whether they're in soil or whether they're in fresh water, whether they're in salt water. They basically infect humans, well, the ones we're interested in. Uh, most are the ones that infect humans. And that environment tends to be very specialized. For example, you know, the temperature is always right around 37 degrees, okay? As opposed to living in free-living bacteria where, you know, maybe 40 below or maybe, um, you know, 90 out there. So they don't have to deal with those kind of wide ranges. Um, these things are, are, have been found in particular in the genomes of things like Yersinia pestis, causes the plague, and mycobacterium leprae, okay, that causes a very slow kind of chronic disease, leprosy. Okay, so mycobacterium leprae has thousands of pseudogenes, things it just doesn't need anymore. Uh, again, obligate intracellular parasitism is an extreme example of reductive as seen in the chlamydia and the rickettsia. Um, this is the chlamydial genome, but even for a very minimal bacterial genome, there's coordinated gene regulation, and it's still complex and interactive. Okay, so, you know, this is one of the smallest genomes in bacteria, but you can see there's still a fair number of genes here. Uh, okay, we're just going to touch very lightly on transcriptional regulation. Uh, 
The bacterial genes are regulated by proteins that bind to specific DNA sequences, and they affect the transcription of the gene. Okay, there's a number of, of different broad categories. Promoter recognition, that is, okay, uh, the general uh, structure of a, a bacterial gene will have the promoter uh, the furthest upstream, some sort of operator uh, sequence that's in between the promoter and the gene, and then the gene or several genes. Uh, binding to certain promoters is again uh, can be directed by sigma factors uh, which bind to the RNA polymerase uh, heteropolymer okay. and what that does is it changes what type of promoter the polymerase will bind to. Um, you can have negative control that's where a repressor protein binds near the promoter and it blocks transcription okay, and it binds in the um, operator region. Or you can have positive control and that's where you have an activator protein that binds near the promoter and enables transcription. Or you can have a molecule that binds to a repressor that causes it to be released. And we're just going to look at, at two systems and I just want to sort of get across uh, okay, the two general classes of systems. Okay, there's the anabolic and catabolic. Okay, this is an anabolic system. Okay, so this is a operon of genes that are involved in making tryptophan. Now, the thing about anabolic or biosynthetic systems is that they're constitutively on and then are repressed when the end product is present at a certain level. So, constitutively, I think you know what that means, it's the kind of default position is it's on. Now, once the level of tryptophan uh, gets higher in the cell, okay, once it reaches a certain level, it binds to this, what's called an apo repressor. Okay? Now, the two of them, when the tryptophan bound to the apo repressor, it forms an active repressor protein. Okay, this then binds the operator sequence and basically stops the expression. Okay, so biosynthetic constitutively on uh, until the molecule that is synthesizing is at a high enough concentration that the bacteria then wants to turn it off. Okay, these so co-repressor uh, tryptophan here, the end product, is basically the co-repressor. So the bacteria gets to a certain level and says, okay, that's enough. Uh, turn that set of genes off. 
And these, this is in contrast to um, the lack of run, which you've probably heard of. And this is a catabolic system. It digests uh, lactose or allolactose. Okay, so the genes in this opera are basically beta-lactosidase, the permease, and transacetylase, and they're all involved in breaking down and using lactose as a carbon source. Now, this is the opposite of anabolic systems. So catabolic <coughs> systems are constitutively off. Okay, so if you don't sense lactose in the environment, you don't want to express these genes. So this works in the opposite way. The product that the uh, opera is involved in processing um, is not needed until the actual molecule of breaks down is present. Okay, so they're constitutively off and they're turned on only when the product is present. So, when lactose is absent, uh, the repressor protein called the lacti protein binds to the operator and you get no expression okay, of these genes. Okay. But when lactose uh, is introduced or it senses it's present, the lacti repressor binds to um, allolactose and it's inactivated. Okay, so um, the allolactose, okay, so this protein, lacti, is bound here and it's preventing transcription. Now, when the allolactose is introduced, it binds the repressor protein and the repressor protein is released. Okay, so just the opposite uh, kind of setup from before. Okay, so th that's your bacterial genetics system. Okay, okay, so now we're going to start talking about two component signal transduction. Okay, so how do they get from environmental cues to gene regulation? And although, you know, as the title of the lecture says, we're talking about simple systems. I want to give you at least a flavor that in bacteria these can be a lot more complex than you think. They're still, you know, order of magnitude less than the complexity of gene regulation in eukaryotes or in human cells, for example. Um, but they still can be pretty complicated. Okay, so let's start with a very simple system. So, signal transduction, okay, is generally a response to an external environment, environmental condition. Just like what we were talking about before. Temperature, pH, uh, the presence of metal ions or nutrients, uh, what have you. And the, the way these very simple systems work is they have a sensor, and a transducer. <coughs> the sensor is on the outer surface of the bacteria. 
and there's all kinds of different sensors. Um, when they sense their specific signal, uh, they then go through a phosphorylation of an intracellular protein. And this is called a, a phospho-relay system. Okay, so what happens is the sensor senses, say, low magnesium or something. Uh, it auto-phosphorylates itself. It then phosphorylates the transducer protein. Now, this protein is activated by the phosphorylation, and once it's phosphorylated, it becomes a DNA binding protein. So, that's how this signal <coughs> is transduced to gene regulation. Once it becomes a DNA binding protein, it binds to specific sequences that are upstream of promoters. And they're only, these sequences are only found in front of certain genes. Okay? So, for example, um, if it's responding to um, high pH or something, uh, it'll bind, this transducer will bind to whatever set of genes are required uh, to lower the internal pH. Okay, and again, we're just going to go through these three again. Um, so, the first one is how bacteria basically uh, respond to nutrient gradients by chemotaxis. And as we mentioned, uh, I mean, I mentioned previously, and we'll kind of discuss it again how it does this. Uh, motility occurs through rotation of the flagellum. But this is how the chemotaxis system itself works. Uh, it again involves a movement towards the chemoattractant or away from a toxic compound. Um, it starts out with a series of sensors. Um, there are a large number of these. And they all bind certain things. For example, this may be glucose, this may be calcium, Magnesium, uh, but it responds to and can sense uh, nutrient gradients. Okay, and what it does is these sensors then go through a system called the CHE key system for chemotaxis, uh, where you have a, a two-component system motif. Okay, so this is again like the very simple system we looked at before, uh, involves a phospho-relay um, chain that results in uh, <coughs> the phosphorylation of these response regulators. These regulators then control which way the flagellum rotates. Okay? And so, um, I've, I mentioned this in the previous uh, talk, but it's, it's um, kind of illustrated better here. So, remember, flagella can rotate in both directions, counterclockwise, 
rotation results in forward movement, and this is called a run. And clockwise rotation results in reorientation, or a tumble. In other words, the bacteria is not going anywhere. So what happens is counterclockwise, the bacteria is moving, and it's moving up a nutrient gradient or down a toxin gradient. Now tumble is what it rotates clockwise. Okay, what the bacteria does is it doesn't move anywhere. It just tumbles. Okay, in whatever environment it is, and then when you switch back to counterclockwise rotation, the bacteria is reoriented. But it's, it's not a coordinated process. It can't see which way it wants to go. It's just kind of a random process. So, in this diagram, for example, we're looking at, um, you know, this is where the bacteria starts. And this is where the nutrient is. Okay, so it's trying to move towards it. So, here we see, you know, a long bacterial run. There's a tumble, the bacteria changes directions, okay? It's still about the same concentration, but it tumbles here, and then it heads in this direction, which is away from the glucose, say, okay? And what you can see is that it, it the system changes the length of the run. If it's moving away, it makes it a very short run, and it tumbles again, and turns, uh, and eventually, say it tumbles here, and then it heads this way, and it's heading up the gradient. So it makes a long run, okay? So this may look kind of very inefficient, but they can do this very rapidly. And in this random sort of approach, controlling how far the bacteria runs versus how often it tumbles. Um, they move very <coughs> rapidly uh, towards nutrient gradients. Okay, now we're going to look at physical status. And we're going to look at a system that I think can give you a an idea of how complex the response can be to a very uh, simple system. Uh, this is the, the FOP, FOQ system. Be careful how you say that. <laughs> so this is a two-component signaling system. Uh, it's a central element in, in a very highly interconnected bacterial genetic network, and it's found in a very large number of bacterial pathogens, including Salmonella enterica, Yersinia pestis, Neisseria meningitidis, or E. coli. It's a sensor for extracytoplasmic magnesium. Okay, again, what we said is that the sensor sticks outside of the cell. Uh, once it senses its signal, in this case, low magnesium. Uh, it then autophosphorylates 
phosphorylates the transducer, the transducer becomes a DNA binding protein, and it turns on sets of genes. Now, the interesting thing is when we talked about how pathogens can uh, use systems that free-living bacteria have, this is a case of that. Okay? So, to sense low magnesium, uh, it's believed in general that calcium and magnesium are relatively high in the extracellular space and relatively low in the cytoplasm of mammalian cells. Therefore, this system is thought to have been adapted for the bacteria to sense whether it's outside a mammalian cell or inside. Uh, so, for example, um, um, Salmonella and Terrapin. <coughs> you know, it invades human macrophages. Okay? And it wants to know whether it's outside a macrophage or it's inside the macrophage. And it has two particular, uh, what are called pathogenicity islands. One they express when they're outside cells, and the other when they're inside cells. Okay, so this system essentially turns on the um, pathogenicity island 2. It's called the SPI 2. And that is the system that is needed when it's inside macrophages. So the transducer here is FOP, and it controls the expression of <coughs> many different genes under low magnesium conditions. And the way it does this is it binds this sequence separated by a repeat of this sequence separated by five nucleotides that upstream of the genes uh, that it controls. Okay, so here's an example. Okay, so basically the outer membrane, the inner membrane, the sensors here, uh, and it senses low magnesium. So this results in phosphorylation of the DNA binding protein. Now, in Salmonella, for example, this results in turning on uh, this operon, which is basically involved in LPS production. Uh, this particular gene, uh, which is involved in resistance to things like reactive oxygen, and it's involved in intermacrophage survival. So again, this is something you don't want to express outside of macrophages, but once you've been taken up by a macrophage, uh, you want to express it. Um, magne magnesium transport for intermacrophage survival. Adherence, again, intermacrophage survival, uh, resistance to acid and resistance to bile. And here we see um, this is called the Salmonella pathogenicity island 2. And this is the one that's required when you're inside 
macrophages. Okay, so um, here we have other sets of genes that are involved in survival inside cells. Um, prevention of fibrolysisome <coughs> fusion is another mechanism used by intracellular bacteria to avoid being killed. Uh, so you can see that it controls a large number of genes. But the thing that gets complex is that also influences another system. Okay, so this is another uh, signal transduction system, okay, that is, uh, you know, built along similar lines to this system, the FO system, but this system affects this system, okay? So now you have a regulatory system on top of another regulatory system, and this can make things very complex. And this system is basically involved in LPS modification uh, to alter it in such a way that it's resistant to antimicrobial peptides. Okay, so even though bacterial systems generally fairly simple, they can be um, complex. So, just as a summary, virulence gene regulation, uh, pathogenic bacteria basically have to uh, coordinate a lot of different things when they're causing disease. Uh, groups of factors are often expressed in coordinate fashion uh, via systems that control operons, regulons, and stimulons. And one and two component systems are common, uh, and all of this time, basically, human pathogens, they have to deal with immunological pressure. Okay? So, even though they are basically adapting to their environment, they're always in an arms race with the uh, immune system, whether it's the innate or the adaptive, okay? So that's a constant battle, and that has to be fought all the time. And then they have to regulate other things uh, in relation to Okay, so now we'll go on to the last one, population status and quorum sensing. Okay, quorum sensing is a mechanism that bacteria use to communicate population density. Uh, and this allows them to express genes in a kind of community-wide manner. The mechanism itself involves a production, release, and detection of what are called autoinducers. Okay, and these are chemical signaling molecules that the bacteria makes, secretes, and other bacteria have receptors for. Okay, so um, there are different types of corn sensing systems. Uh, for example, gram-negative bacteria usually have what's called the Lux-I-R system. Gram-positive bacteria have systems that involve oligopeptides and two-component systems. And then there are a number of hybrid systems. 
the details of this are, you know, not really. Uh, just want you to know them generally. Okay. So cell-cell communication can be uh, within or between bacterial species, and between bacterial pathogens and their hosts. Okay. So. In, for example, the Lux I, Lux R system, E. coli can detect how many bacteria out there are E. coli by recognizing how much of one autoinducer there is. But they also have another system that can detect all of the bacteria out there. So it may say, you know, it. In terms of population density, we're about 71% of the population, and the density is very high. Okay, so this allows them uh, to respond to other bacteria or to respond to bacteria that are essentially the same species. Um, these systems were originally found in, in bacteria that are carried in light organs. Of ocean animals. For example, this bobtail squid has a region around its eye um, in which it can control the bacterial density. Okay, so there are, there's an organism called Vibrio fisheri that's found in here, and it's generally at about 10 to the 8 per mil. But the squid can basically flood that organ and bring the, the bacterial population up to about 10 to the 11 per mil, very rapidly. Now, these bacteria have what's called a Lux system. They have luciferase genes, so they phosphoresce. And the squid, for example, can essentially turn this Lux system on or off very rapidly. And it's involved in basically, I don't know, trying to scare predators or something. And I don't think anyone knows for sure. Uh, but they can basically turn on this huge light around their eyes um, that's involved in, you know, it's a symbiotic bacterial squid relationship. Uh, that has some purpose, and it's presumed, it presumed it's involved in uh, escape from predators. Now, quorum sensing, again, it's how you detect how many bacteria are out there and how you respond. Now, okay, so this just goes into some, some detail. Um, okay, so basically, I just want you look at autoinducers in gram negatives, they're usually uh, some form of an acyl homoserine lactone. And in gram positives, they're peptides. Um, here we see a low cell density organism. Okay? Now it's expressing these acyl homoserine lactones but there's so few bacteria that they're not having any effect. Uh, the receptors for these molecules 
that may, again, may be specific for one species, uh, but others have receptors that detect other bacteria as well. Now, here we see uh, the same sort of organism at high cell density. Okay. It's producing much, or it's sensing much higher levels of the autoinducers. And what's happening is these re they're binding to receptors, uh, which are then binding uh, to these operons and turning up expression of these genes. Okay, so now I'm going to okay, bacterial pathogens. Um, this is kind of an interesting point. Um, very often, they use cell density to determine when they're going to control virulence factor expression. For example, when are they going to produce toxins or some other thing? Okay, and they wait until the population's very high and then they turn on these virulence factors. Uh, and one kind of interesting side note is that there's a fair amount of research into what's called quorum quenching. In other words, these autoinducers are very simple acyl homoserine lactones. And if you basically um, give them to bacteria, or you give them a, an analog that doesn't allow, that binds to the repressor, but doesn't allow it to be processed, you can interfere with this um, form sensing system. So, for example, people are looking at the ability to control the expression of virulence factors in serious uh, bacterial infections using these types of simple molecules. Okay, now down to a, an outcome from quorum sensing that's extremely important for virtually all bacteria. And that's termed biofilm formation. Okay? And quorum systems are kind of intricately involved in formation of biofilms. So just very simply, here we have what are called planktonic bacteria. They're free-living, say in the ocean or something, okay? Um, they're spread out, um, so the population cell density is very low, okay? Eventually, uh, they may attach to something, okay, where you get a small number of bacteria attached. For example, that's what happens at the bottom of ships, okay? You get bacteria attached, you know, they're basically in the ocean, then they attach to the hull of a ship, um, and they form what are called micro-colonies. So once they get to this density, this signals, quorum uh, sensing, okay, so the turn on of certain genes. And what this results in is the production of this biofilm material. It's usually a carbohydrate that allows the bacteria to form these uh, very large kind of structures. And 
Okay? So, biofilms have basically been defined as multicellular assemblages of bacteria on abiotic or biotic surfaces. Okay, so human pathogens, for example, form biofilms inside the body. Um, again, the bacteria themselves are suspended in a matrix that they produce, generally a carbohydrate, and it actually has an organized structure. So here we see, um, you know, eight hours, one and a half days, three days, eight days, the formation of this biofilm. Okay, meant to be the same as this. And these structures essentially have water channels through them, um, but they're very hydrophobic. Okay, so the bacteria are kind of protected. Um, it's realized now that virtually all bacteria grow as biofilms. Uh, the problem in, in, say, disease is that the, once they become, form these biofilms, they're difficult to eradicate because they're more resistant to attacks from the innate or adaptive immune uh, systems, and they're generally less sensitive to antibiotics. Okay, so they're basically encased in this gel kind of material. And so macrophages or PMNs or other lymphocytes can't really get at them. Okay, so in a sense, this is a very simplistic kind of multicellular form of the organism. Uh, an example of this is pseudomonas aeruginosa in cystic fibrosis uh, forms a persistent biofilm in the lung. Okay, and this makes it very difficult to get rid of the bacteria at first, uh, but it also causes, you know, difficulties for the person with the disease in terms of just breathing. Okay, so I think we'll stop here for a bit. If you want to. Very decisive. <laughs> Gotta wake up and think about it.
Was that? I think that's just about everybody. Is there? Okay, I think we'll carry on to the bitter end here. Okay, so this is a flashback from the structure lecture, and I just want to use it to remind you that in gram-negative bacteria, you have what's termed the outer membrane, <coughs> okay? This is a second membrane beyond the cytoplasmic membrane. Um, that surrounds the bacteria and is <coughs> a, a very kind of hydrophobic environment. And what I want to sort of briefly talk about uh, and then stress one of the systems is how gram-negatives uh, secrete things. How do they secrete things like proteins? Okay, because they have to get it across this double membrane system uh, with peptidoglycan uh, between it. Okay. As you can see, uh, there are a number of different systems and not all of them uh, basically are shown here. And I don't expect you to know the detail of the systems, um, except I want to focus a little bit on this particularly interesting system and show you uh, some examples. Okay, we'll just go through them uh, fairly quickly. So type 1 protein secretion involves uh, ABC transporters. Okay, and basically this ABC comes from ATP binding cassette transporters. Okay, so they use ATP uh, to secrete things. This is a superfamily that's probably the largest and most ancient fa family of all. It's found everywhere from bacteria to humans. Uh, it moves molecules into the cell or out of the cell, uh, uses ATP. It contains two membrane-spanning domains and an ATP binding proteins and it transports a large number of different things, different transports, okay? Um, so, E. coli may have, you know, 50 different ABC transport. Uh, and there are things like uh, lipids, ions, <coughs> proteins, drugs, small molecules. Uh, they're important in the development of multi-drug resistance in bacteria because some act as general efflux pumps, okay? So what that means is they efflux molecules from inside the cell to outside. And what happens is this is a very powerful means of antibiotic resistance. Um, it's not kind of involved with a particular enzyme, it just lowers the internal concentration of antibiotics. And when it does that, it tends to be very broad range. You know, you can use streptomycins or doxycycline or whatever 
these efflux systems will pump sometimes all of these molecules out. So you have a big problem in terms of how do you treat uh, that particular infection. Okay, type 2 protein secretion. Um, this is a two-step pathway that depends on what's called SEC, the general secretion pathway, and TAP, the twin arginine translocase pathway. Uh, for movement, one to the periplasm, and then utilizes an outer membrane secretion pathway to exit the cell. Okay, so um, what's shown here is basically this molecule <clears throat> uses one system to get to the periplasm, so it's halfway out. Then it utilizes a different system to pass through the outer membrane. Okay, and most of the substrates of these systems uh, are important <coughs> virulence factors. For example, the ETEC toxin, the cholera toxin, Pseudomonas elastase and exotoxin A. Okay, the type 3 protein secretion system is very interesting. Okay, it's uh, composed of a number of different subunits and it basically delivers um, what are called effector molecules from the inside of the bacteria directly inside of host cells. Okay. It's also known as a contact-dependent secretion pathway. Okay, so it only happens when the bacteria gets very close to the cytoplasmic membrane of the host cell. Okay, and what you can see is that it basically forms this kind of hypodermic syringe kind of molecule. Um, this part of the system um, is similar in a lot of ways to the flagellin um, um, basal body that we looked at earlier. Uh, but this system forms basically a translocation pore and it inserts itself through the host cell membrane. Okay? So it's involved in secreting just certain bacterial molecules uh, directly into the host cell. Now these molecules, effector proteins, are meant to interact with other host proteins. And they can have a variety of different activities. Uh, they can interfere with certain uh, host transcriptional uh, regulators, the, there's many, many different activities. Okay, many bacterial pathogens kind of have this. Uh, for example, in Yersinia, uh, Salmonella, on both the uh, SPI1, which is the external pathogenicity island, and on SPI2. So, what happens is, they can actually get adjacent to a macrophage and secrete molecules directly into the macrophage. But then if they're taken up by the macrophage, they have another system that can secrete
excrete molecules out of what's called the phagot lysosome. So that's where the bacteria are inside the cell. Uh, intrapathogenic E. coli have a system uh, called Li, and we're going to talk about that in a little more uh, detail. Um, the type 4 protein secretion system um, is basically extremely complex. Uh, it's related to bacterial pili, and it transfers a lot of different types of molecules, including DNA and proteins. Uh, it was first discovered in the plant pathogen, agrobacteria, tumefaciens, uh, where it transfers a plasmid and causes crown gall tumors. Many bacterial pathogens, again, have this, but very little is known yet about uh, what the functions are. It's known, though, that they are very important in pathogenesis because with many types of bacteria, uh, you know, for example, in Legionella, it's called the .ICM uh, system, okay? And if you knock those genes out, you'll find that Legionella is virtually avirulent, okay? So it's not exactly sure what the function is or what it's secreting, but we know if we get rid of it, the bacteria are really um, almost avirulent. Uh, in Helicobacter, there's the PEG-A system, uh, recently discovered in Neisseria gonorrhea, Campylobacter, and Helicobacter, um, where DNA um, is basically secreted. Okay, the type 5 systems are called the autotransporter systems, and these are very large proteins that have different domains within one protein. Okay, they have a transporter domain that forms a beta barrel uh, channel in the outer membrane. And then they have a passenger domain that goes through the channel and may be cleaved. Okay, so the idea here is that the protein uh, goes through the normal secretion pathway to the periplasm, and then this beta barrel part, or the transporter domain, forms this structure in the outer membrane, and then it transports um, the other piece of the protein through that channel. Okay, so they're auto-transporters. Okay. The type 6 system is so weird and misunderstood that I'm not even going to put up any kind of structure. Um, it's recently discovered it oops, secretes some protein toxins and effector molecules. Uh, one thing we know though that is sort of, uh, you know, because of the, the next generation sequencing revolution, uh, we are sort of way advanced in terms of what we know about what bacterial pathogens uh, have, uh, that essentially things like this, we can tell that many, many different bacteria have this, 
but that doesn't help us in terms of you know understanding what it is. It requires you know good old kind of cell biology and biochemistry to catch up to the the DNA sequencing. Okay. Now I'm just gonna. This is the last section. Uh, basically, I think. Or, no, we didn't really talk, but there. In terms of horizontal transfer of DNA, there's basically conjugation, transduction, and transformation. And these are the three major systems. Conjugation is transfer of a plasmid DNA is very efficient. Transduction is a co-transfer of DNA uh, with the bacteriophage, and it's a very low frequency event. Uh, transformation is the movement of free DNA. Okay, in terms of pathogenicity islands, uh, movement by conjugation transformation uh, can result in big changes. Okay, although these mechanisms uh, contribute to the evolution of bacterial pathogens, uh, for example, the movement and virulence factors like toxins or adhesins. Uh, but the really big changes occur when you move these large blocks of DNA called pathogenicity islands. And this just illustrates uh, how you can take a normal commensal E. coli and turn it into a wide number of different pathogens. For example, uh, with the addition of this PENT plasmid encoding a toxin, you get enterotoxigenic E. coli. Uh, with the movement of this Lee pathogenicity island and this PEAF plasmid, which is defacement and attachment factor, um, you get what are called enteropathogenic E. coli. And both of these are, are really nasty. Uh, enteropathogenic are, for example, the O157, H7, okay, that you get in, you know, undercooked beef or a whole, whole range of different things. Uh, by movement of the lead and a different uh, bacteriophage that encodes a toxin, you get enterohemorrhagic E. coli. Um, similarly, by transfer of different molecules, um, you can get enteroinvasive or uropathogenic E. coli. Now, all of these pathogens cause quite different disease. I mean, they're all serious, but some of them are, are deadly serious, okay? Uh, they all occur by movements of these either pathogenicity islands over here, um, bacteriophage, or plasmids. So we're going to talk about one. That's the um, enteropathogenic E. It causes what's termed attachment effacement lesions on intestinal epithelial cells. 
So attachment refers to um, the bacteria shown here attached to this kind of cup-like structure. And effacement refers to the loss of microvilli on enterocytes um, surrounding the bacteria. And the Lee is the locus of enterocyte effacement. Uh, and interestingly, these bacteria force an infected cell to basically cooperate in its own infection. So the Lee pathogenicity encodes a type 3 secretion system. And also on this island uh, is a gene called TIR. And this protein is ejected into host cells. It's modified by the host cell, then it inserts in the host cell plasma membrane, and it becomes a high affinity receptor for protein called intimate in the bacteria. So in this case, the bacteria has used this system to inject a receptor for one of its own proteins. Okay, so this tier intimate interaction uh, triggers the accumulation of actin uh, polymers and it results in this kind of odd-looking pedestal formation. Now it's still not clear why enteropathogenic E. coli want to form this pedestal. Um, but they do. Okay, I've got an ancient little video. I don't know if you guys have tried to play it. Um, I'm not sure. We'll play it even. Um, and it just kind of gives you who here is a computer specialist. Okay, so what we're going to look at, I hope, is the enteropathogenic E. coli approaching an enterocyte. And then we're going to see this establishment of the type 3 system, and then secretion of, from the bacteria of the tear molecule. The tear molecule is modified by the host. It comes back and it sticks out through the host cell membrane where it interacts with another bacterial protein uh, called intimate. Okay? So this is an example where the bacteria has used one of these secretion systems to sort of co-opt the host and provides its own receptor. Maybe not. 
Somebody said there was another way to play these things. Does anybody happen to know of one? You have quick time on that desktop. Yeah, just right click the file and then open the quick time. Yeah, get another one. Where is it? Click on open with. Open with. Now over the quick time player. Okay, so just here we see, you know, the bacteria, these are the flagella, it's a, approaching an endocyte, or endocytes. Okay, so this is the effacement, okay, where they, the microvilli are basically uh, broken down. Now the bacteria is coming into close association with the enterocyte membrane. Now, this is the beginning, basically, of the establishment of the type 3 injectosome, okay, where the structure is forming, and it's basically attaching the inside of the bacteria to the host cell. Now we see these molecules coming through. These are the tear protein. Okay, so they're being secreted directly into the cell. The cell is phosphorylating them. And then they go back and essentially stick through the cytoplasmic membrane. Okay, so these are bacterial proteins that are now in the host cell membrane. And now the bacteria uses another protein called intimate that binds to tear. So the bacteria has provided its own high affinity receptor. Now following this, the tear molecules are modified again and they begin to accumulate actin. Uh, the actin is polymerized into microfilaments and we begin to see this kind of structure forming around the bacteria. Okay, and this results in kind of outward movement and the formation of these, these pedestals that are characteristic of enteropathogenic So, that's the type 3 secretion system in action. Seems a good soundtrack. It, it used to have one. It was, um, what's the, the Battle of the Valkyries or something <laughs> from Apocalypse Now? And it was really cool then. I was thinking of a spoke thing, Zarathustra from Thousand uh, Space Odyssey. Dom, dom. Yeah, yeah, that might be good too. 
Okay, so basically any questions? I don't think that that level of knowledge is, you know, the type 5 systems are very complex. Okay, you can see there was probably, oh, at least 10 different components, okay? okay. So I would just say, um, most, most of that is basically just to give you an idea of how many of these systems there are. Good luck on your exam.